Okay, welcome into this episode of Mythic Existence. Today we are going to dive into the folklorist perspective on conspiracy theories. My research for this episode is mostly informed by a new academic book that recently came out called COVID-19 Conspiracy Theories, QAnon, 5G, The New World Order, and Other Viral Ideas, as well as Richard Hofstetter's seminal work, The Paranoid Style in American Politics. We're going to hope to deconstruct why conspiracy theories exist, why they are appealing, and to whom. So sit back and get ready for another episode of Mythic Existence. So I'd like to first off apologize for the lack of consistency in my episodes recently. You know, uh, the COVID time has just been real tough for me, like as for everybody. I mean, I finished my master's degree in the spring and kind of was just thrown out into the uh the you know job world that is already it's already difficult for somebody who is somebody that studies the humanities to get good jobs but especially you know um in this really tough work environment uh it's been just kind of difficult for me finally i've gotten some semi um typical or semi you know usual work as a folklorist doing history oral history stuff but um I just kind of was struggling a little bit there to just uh get my get my priorities and kind of my schedule figured out um but it's a little bit more usual now so hopefully I can get back to having weekly episodes um if not it might be just kind of when I have stuff prepared honestly I'm not going to go too long without one but um my podcast episodes are a little bit contingent on the research that I'm doing at a given point in time. Um, you know, I'm always reading, always learning new stuff. So I usually do podcasts about that. And I mean, I usually read a book every week or two. And, you know, a lot of times my podcasts are about these the new books I'm reading, like this one. Um, and obviously I have stuff just from my past that I've learned about that I can pull in. But um you know, I mean, preparing a, an episode for a podcast takes a lot of time just to do the research in the first place. So I want to have good stuff to say as my main priority. So um, with that said, let's get into the episode. And like I said, this um, I, I recently read this book, The COVID-19 Conspiracy Theories. It's published by a number of um, different professors and pr- professionals from different, uh, you know, backgrounds. I mean, one of them is uh, Professor Ian Brody, who is a folklorist up in Canada at Cape Breton University. Um, I, I, I wasn't really familiar with a lot of the other people, but, you know, some of them are journalists, some of them are professors. So this isn't your YouTube conspiracy theories, um, you know, book, and that... Really, my purpose in today's episode isn't to to definitely isn't to try and promulgate any of these theories and say that I think that they're true. 
Um, it's more to try and give you like the critical kind of academic perspective on conspiracy theories, which mainly relies on the, the concept that, you know, people believe conspiracy theories for, for a reason. And what, what are those reasons? So that's what I want to kind of delve into. Um, so let's start off by wondering about, you know, what purpose do conspiracy theories serve? And really what conspiracy theories are is they're, they're expressions that try to explain how the world works. So that's really what conspiracy theories are. They're, they're almost mythological in that way. Um, we use the term ideological stories in mythology and folklore studies. And those are origin stories. Um, so it, it tries to explain how a current situation has come about how we've gotten to the point where we are today. And um, as we'll see later, Richard Hofstetter, he, he talks about how the conspiracy theorist, he, he gathers facts or evidence, things that look like facts or evidence, but he makes, or he or she, they make a jump in logic to a conclusion and the world is ambiguous, you know, the world isn't black or white. It's, it's a really ambiguous existence and, and things sometimes just kind of happen. Um, but that's not something that a conspiracy theorist believes. Conspiracy theorists believe that the state that we're in has been calculated and manipulated purely by rational actors. Um, and that's one of their first missteps is that they, they think that everything is purely rational and not ambiguous at all. So conspiracy theories, they give a sense of control. They give a sense of control of your current situation. They say, you know, the reason that I have this crappy job or that I'm not doing well is because George Soros is the puppet master calling all the strings or Bill Gates is, you know, trying to uh, plant a chip into me to control me, you know. So that's basically what uh, conspiracy theories, th their purpose, the role that they serve is there. They explain how the world works and how it's came to be. Um, and conspiracy theories... They're, they're often, not always, but a lot of times they are shared by people who feel that they lack social power. And, I mean, the last, the, the Trump presidency was an enormous time for conspiracy theories. One of the reasons is that we actually have world leaders, not just Trump, uh, but other world leaders that, are, that were, you know, actually believing in these conspiracy theories and giving them power. Uh, so we had, you know, Trump supporters who originally felt like they lacked social power for the most part, which is another interesting thing with Trump supporters because it's often either, uh, you know, very capitalist Republicans or very poor Republicans. Not, I mean, that's... There's a spectrum between them, but those are two of his most ardent supporters, right? And so, especially from the standpoint of, well, well let's let's deconstruct both a little bit. I mean, if, to, if you look at the, the poor whites, as Dave Chappelle would call them, 
they felt that they were lacking social power because they felt like their voice was completely being overlooked. And then rich, mostly whites, Republicans, uh, are, you know, fearing that the Democratic, more socialist, and I don't use that term pejoratively because I'm basically a socialist, so... I, I, a lot of people throw around that term like an insult, but it's like, you know, the the democratic way of looking at, you know, trying to um, democratize wealth, essentially, threatens them from taxation and their ability to maximize their earning power, basically. So those are the, the people who would want, you know, Trump in there and... This is just a very specific, like, lacking social power group that I'm, that I'm just thinking about right now. Um, but then Trump got in office, and they still were the ones that were spreading the most conspiracy theories. I mean, okay, I also want to say this. Conspiracy theories are also, they're not a Democratic or Republican thing, but Conspiracy theories are actually remarkably democratic. Um, I mean, some of the most dangerous conspiracy theorists nowadays are the love and light hippie types, um, you know, from the left, who they also, they basically think the same things as the Republicans, just like in a different way. And so it's like, they're two, they're two opposite ends of a circle, and like, here's the far right, here's the far left. They're as far away from each other as they can be, but they're also as close to each other as they can be, if that makes sense. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is like, they, at least if we're looking at Trumpers, you know, they felt like they lacked social power. They got their position of power and then they still were b- spreading and believing conspiracy theories like QAnon and like that the COVID-19 um, is a, a hoax and, you know, all of that. So, um, but we saw a lot of the uh, the lacking social power and kind of uh, the othering that goes along with conspiracy theories play out through theories about the the origins of the COVID virus, again, like the ideological story of the virus itself. Um, And we saw a lot of racist and cultural stereotypes play out within, you know, how people view the Chinese and they called it the Chinese or the Wuhan virus. Um, And I mean, the Chinese kind of, they were spread, they were cast as disease spreaders who eat, weird animals because of the association with the wet markets in China where, um, you know, apparently I, I still don't, I'm not sure where we stand with, um, how definitive COVID is from being, uh, you know, originating in a, from a bat in a wet market, at least to my understanding, that's the scientific standpoint right now. But it's like, you know, you guys, eat this weird food and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're disease spreaders. And that's where it came from. And, uh, you know, food actually is a, a powerful folklorist mechanism in conspiracy theories. 
uh, we also see this. I'm I, I'm trying to do some writing about sports conspiracy theories from a, a critical perspective, and you also see that with Michael Jordan and his flu game. Um, you know, talking about how he's he thinks that he got poisoned by Utah Jazz fans, which you know I've I've listened to an interview with the guy that worked at the Pizza Hut or the Domino's whatever that he got the pizza from, and he's like, no, I was a Jordan fan. We weren't trying to poison him. You just got your pizza from Domino's or Pizza Hut, you know, whatever. Um, as well as the All Blacks in um, the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team also believed that they got poisoned by betters, sports betters, during the 1995 World Cup of Rugby. So food oft- often plays a large role and conspiracy theories. Um, and so the thing is, is like these narratives, they're not, they're not held together by facts. They're held together by worldview. So if you already think that if you're already basically racist or culturally biased against Chinese people and you're an American and these things are feeding in that worldview is going to, um, you know, play into your belief that that the Chinese were responsible for the virus, which I mean, I guess if it like if it originated there, it's not like they're necessarily responsible for it. You know, like they, it's just that's where it started at. Like lots of people are responsible for the fallout from it. Um, and then conspiracy theories, they also ha- the appeal of them has to do with how likely a group feel uh, feels that they're going to be victimized. And so this persecution is a part of the worldview and that often plays heavily into conspiracy theorists uh, and conspiracy theories. Going back to sports, I mean, that is prevalent in like the beliefs of the, the frozen envelope with the New York Knicks and the smaller markets like the Atlanta Hawks thinking that they are being victimized because the... Um, you know, they, they didn't think the league wanted them to get Patrick Ewing or the 2002 uh, Western Conference Finals between the Los Angeles Lakers and the Sacramento Kings. You know, Kings fans think that they're being victimized be- be- because of the referees in that occasion. So that goes back to wishing or assuming your role in the world is larger than it really is. Um you know, it's like, oh, they're, they're, they're actually going after me. This amorphous, they, right. They're actually, they're, they're getting me and they're, they're trying to actually target me really. So, um, that's an interesting thing, the, the persecution aspect of conspiracy theories, but really conspiracy theories are about confirmation bias. Um, it's about confirming by beliefs that you already have or that you already hold. And so there's this, this critical theory called persuasion theory. And it says that if you don't believe that a person is evil, you won't think that the conspiracy theory is real and vice versa. So if you think that Bill Gates is evil already, you're more predisposed to believing that he's the, the mastermind of this conspiracy theory. Or if you think that the NBA is evil already, you're going to be more likely to believe that they're manipulating draft results and stuff like that. Um, 
And I also want to say, like, you know, not all conspiracy theories are wrong. There's actually verified conspiracies throughout history. I mean, plenty of them, you know, like um, MK Ultra mind control ex- experiments, the Tuskegee experiments where they were, you know, um, the U.S. government was uh, testing syphilis on black Air Force pilots, right? And like a lot of them do have to do with the military. Like the military is definitely doing some nefarious things. I mean that that we've have verified. I mean, you can think about the um uh was it the Gulf of Tonkin false flag in Vietnam, you know, stuff like that, right? So, uh I don't want to say that all conspiracy theories are absolutely false, but uh recently I don't have this in my notes, but recently Jeannie Thomas, one of my professors from Utah State, she's de- developing what's called a slap test for conspiracy theories, theories, and it's an acronym that stands for SCARE. Is it designed to scare you? Logistics. What are the logistics of this? Is it easy to pull off, or is it like an incredibly complicated plan? Are there A-list celebrities involved, involved and... Is there some kind of persecution involved as well? So that's one thing. Doing the slap test when you're hearing about a conspiracy theory is uh, probably a good idea to run through to actually figure out if it's really going on or not or like what what logistically is the possibility that it is. Um, so defining conspiracy theories presents its own issues uh and this is one of the things that one of the scholars of belief that folklorists enjoy the most is this man named david hufford and he said what i know i know what you believe you believe that's his kind of approach to uh belief right and that's kind of the general uh umbrella term that conspiracy theories fall under and so you know, you can see how this plays out and think about like religion, you know, like that's a belief for you, but it's knowledge for me or vice versa, right? So conspiracy theorist is a definition that you actually you place on somebody else uh, for the most part. I mean, some people consciously call themselves conspiracy theorists, but not all of them. Um, and conspiracy theorists, theories, they're also often based on past events. So uh, there's a chapter in the COVID book about um, black communities' response to COVID, and a lot of them they thought they thought that they were immune to it, and part of that has to do with um, back in the 1740s. It was shown that black people were were less uh, prone to yellow fever, um, but also you know these t- the Tuskegee experiments and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, colonialism and just generally the racist history of the United States, especially, and just the West, uh, played into their thinking. We saw that play out from a French scientist proposed that Africa should be a testing ground for the vaccine, I believe. And, you know, that that caused a lot of outrage because it was like, well, the people in Africa aren't just guinea pigs that we can test things on. You know, they're not test subjects. 
right? Um, but this is a thing that happens in conspiracy theorists. That it's been called theme recombination, I think is a good term. Um, where, where these themes are being recycled. And you see that, especially with sports conspiracies. Like, it's the same thing over and over again. It's the refs were being told by the puppet master, who's the commissioner, um, to throw a game because of ratings. You know, so it's like we have a scapegoat, we have a puppet, puppet master, we have the reason of, the, of its existence, you know. Um, and we see that with, like, the American presidents and the conspiracy theories about them. Oftentimes, um, every president is cast in the role of the Antichrist. And there's a great chapter about the Antichrist and uh, eschatological beliefs about the end times that just keep on being recycled. And how people, you know, people think that the COVID vaccine is the, the mark of the beast from Revelation. And that thing is just being recycled over and over and over again throughout history. So I want to talk a little bit about um, this book right here, Richard Hofstetter's The Paranoid Style in American Politics. I was first introduced to this text in a actually a, a class about conspiracy theories I took at the University of Kansas as a history undergrad super super interesting class i mean definitely one of the takeaways that i got from that class is that there there are real hit real conspiracies that have happened but this is kind of like the original text that really introduced people into this the paranoid style um this book was published in the 1950s 1952 um i think was the first printing of it um, and so, yeah, one of the things that Hofstadter talks about is that conspiracies are trying to get a whole picture for ambiguous phenomena. And that's what I was kind of talking about earlier. Like, uh, conspiracy theorists think that everything is happening for a reason. And he talks about how they're actually misunderstanding how history works itself. They think that conspiracies are the motive force, he calls it of historical events. Um, and a couple of things that they talk about in the COVID book are misper misperception of chance and conjunction error, which is kind of tied into this, this thinking misperception of chance is when some like, for example, you, someone in it that was just in a crash thinks that they're less likely to have another crash. When in fact, those things are not connected to each other at all. And you see that in conspiratorial thinking. Um, another is conjunction error, where cultural cues you have, you think that they give you an idea of what someone is. Um, and I think the, 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 the example they use was something like, if you see somebody, you know, in like a nice car with a nice suit, you might think that they're rich. That's not what it is, but it's like, it's basically... Uh, you're you're conflating things that you think give you an idea of what something or someone is, but you're just wrong about it. So um, I want to read a couple of quotes from the paranoid style that I think are really good. Um, and the first is kind of about this misperception of history. He says, 
the paranoid's interpretation of history is, in this sense, directly personal. Decisive events are not taken as part of the stream of history, but as the consequences of someone's will. Very often the enemy is held to possess some especially effective source of power. He controls the press, he directs the public mind through managed news, he has unlimited funds, and he has a new secret for influencing the mind. And so Hofstadter said this in 1952, and I mean, just think about how relevant that is today. I mean, all of, you know, Trump's fake news uh, propaganda, like his, his uh, what, whatever you want to call it, you know, his tirade against the news, basically, and actually him, like, trying to prop up legitimately fake news, like One American News and stuff like that. Um, and, I mean, you can see stuff like George Soros and Bill Gates theories about them in there as well. Um, and so here's another one. The typical procedure of the higher paranoid scholarship is to start with such defensible assumptions and with a careful accumulation of facts, or at least of what appear to be facts, and to marshal these facts toward an overwhelming proof of the particular conspiracy theory that is to be established. It is nothing if not coherent. In fact, the paranoid mentality is far more co coherent than the real world, since it leaves no room for mistakes, failures, or ambiguities. It is, if not wholly rational, at least intentionally, intensely rationalistic. It believes that it is up against an enemy who is infallibly rational as he is totally evil. So that's kind of what I was talking about, you know, that they, they just think that uh, this totally evil person is just like completely rationally manipulating events. Um, and you see that, especially in sports, there's, there's a theory that some elite figurehead is manipulating sports based on numerology and that all sports are scripted, but it's like, just run that through the slap test. How much, like, how could that logistically be possible? It would take somebody sitting behind a desk, typing up numbers and figuring out, okay, 155 or, you know, 57 is the number for the Super Bowl, and Tom Brady's name equals this, and, you know, the Packers equal this, so we need, it's like, no, that's not, that, that's not going to happen, that's not how it happens, like, these people are going out there and doing the sports, you know, so, um, run the slap test. So the book outlines three types of conspiracy theories, uh, the first is specific limited events and that's what a lot of you see in especially like QAnon theories is like QAnon is the super conspiracy which is okay so that's another one of the three types of conspiracy theories I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself but then within it you have like these micro conspiracy theories like Pizzagate and um the the Clinton emails and stuff like that so you have macro and micro specific limited super conspiracies but they're tied in um and then group takeover is the second one where you have the danger from above where it's like you have this insider um like uh like david stern in the nba or you have the dangerous insider like the communists in uh the Mac the mccarthy era of the paranoid style which I mean, that was a lot of taking place during when 
Hofstadter was writing. Some of this book was also like uh, written in the the later 60, 50s and and in the early sixties. So McCarthy era was a lot of when he was writing. Um, and conspiracy theories they often take the form of what what we call friend of a friend tale, where it's you know my friend heard from their friend that Joe's uncle is an insider that knows the person who thinks they know who Q is, you know? So it's like, it's this long, like roundabout uh, way to get to the top. Right. Um, and then some, some themes that they talk about in Q and on that I want to go into a little bit is first this thing called gamification where, conspiracy theories theorists turn their investigation into a game essentially where they follow these breadcrumbs to lead them to the truth um and ultimately these conspiracy theories can be weaponized so it's called weaponization and i mean this was this book was written before the january 6th insurrection but i mean talk about weaponization of a conspiracy theory right um and they also talk about how legends and rumors, and that's conspiracy theories, they fall under the the rumor umbrella as well. They impel listeners to action. And that's what we call ostension is acting out a legend. And so really the the Capitol riots and the insurrection were an ostensive um, you know, legend trip impelled by conspiracy theories, which is super, super interesting. Um, basically conspiracy theories are an instance of snowball storytelling. So like you can think of conspiracy theories as being a snowball that keeps on just going down the hill and picking up size based on the more people that are interacting with it. Um, and conspiracy theorists can believe in contradictory theories. That's something that you often see, uh, especially I I've noted that a lot in my sports research that I've, that I've been doing is that people will just believe in these two complete two things that completely contradict themselves and definitely with trump theorists like you'll see uh people being interviewed where they'll say oh well if trump doesn't get elected it's because it was a uh a hoax or it was rigged but if he does get elected it wasn't hoaxed or it wasn't rigged so it's like no, you just are trying to confirm your beliefs for why someone was elected, basically. Um, let's see. One big term in conspiracy theories is uh, amplification. And amplification is when gatekeepers give conspiracy theorists and conspiracy theories a platform. I definitely think that, you know, Fox News does a lot of that and some of these other networks, but... One one interesting instance was in the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, that came out in May, I think it was, and they had a lot. They gave a lot of focus into Jordan's flu game and this conspiracy theory that he was uh, poisoned. So amplification, and then a, another big term is scapegoating. I mean, we've talked about it a little bit, but uh, I mean, scapegoating is like the number one reason why conspiracy theories exist in sports is that they all you always need the 
the scapegoat and the hero in sports. That's something that one of my professors in a baseball literature class in college kind of pointed out is that you always need the scapegoat and you always need the hero. Um, and so that's kind of where this desire to identify, you know, who's to blame for the virus comes from this scapegoatism that is an ancient thing that we've done. I mean, um, Jews have been scapegoated so often throughout history, um, and that happened a lot with the Black Death, which there's a lot of carryover between COVID and the Black Death because the Black Death was also a zoonotic um, you know, disease because it came from the rats in Europe, but they were also, the Jews were blamed for it. And now today, we're blaming like George Soros and the Rothschilds, people do that. And so um, scapegoatism is one thing that it's just like a natural human tendency, almost it seems like, but it's a huge reason for why conspiracy theories exist. But that also plays into confirmation bias because, you know, if you're anti-Semitic, then it's going to be easy for you to scapegoat. Um, Or if your team loses, it's going to be easy for you to scapegoat the refs or whatever it might be. So the last chapter of the book, um, it's kind of talks about like, what are you supposed to do with conspiracy theories? And it talks about how many of us, most of us have conspiracy theories in our heads and believe conspiracy theories. But what you have to do is you have to question like, why do you believe that one? What is interesting to you about that particular conspiracy theory? What makes you feel better about it? What element attracts you? Is the villain somebody that you naturally don't like? Is it an institute that you don't like? And what fear is it comforting? So that's really what drives us to believe these conspiracy theories in the first place. It talks about, you know, if if somebody that you like or that is close to you believes conspiracy theories, they, they say to motivationally interview them and say, Huh, that's interesting that why that you believe that. Why do you believe that? Don't just dismiss and call them stupid. That's not the way to deal with conspiracy theories. And especially it says don't engage on the internet with conspiracy theorists. And I think that that's just good a good um point of advice in general. Just don't get in arguments with the internet. It's just with people on the internet. It's just a complete waste of time. Um so that's it for today's episode of Mythic Existence. Hopefully by now you understand that conspiracy theories often feed into confirmation bias. This manifests itself in a number of ways through the desire to understand ambiguous phenomena, the wish of having a larger role in the world than you really do, or ethnocentric biases. That doesn't mean that there aren't actual conspiracies going on, but it's best to think critically. So thanks for listening. See you next time.